You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to Psalm 32, verse 1, to the end of that psalm. Psalm of David. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you, while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach you. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, you righteous, sing. All you are upright in heart. This afternoon we are dealing with the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, We've come to the Canons of Dort, chapter 5, articles 4, 5, and 6. Article 4, notice the heading, saints may fall into serious sins. Although the power of God, whereby he confirms and preserves true believers in grace, is so great that it cannot be conquered by the flesh, yet the converted are not always so led and moved by God that they cannot in Certain particular actions turn aside through their own fault from the guidance of grace and be seduced by and yield to the lusts of the flesh. They must therefore constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptation. When they do not watch and pray, they not only can be drawn away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into serious and atrocious sins, but with the righteous permission of God are sometimes actually drawn away. The lamentable fall of David, Peter, and other saints described in Holy Scripture demonstrates this. Article 5, the effects of such serious sins. By such gross sins, however, they greatly offend God, incur the guilt of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound their consciences, and sometimes for a while lose the sense of God's favor until they return to the right way through sincere repentance and God's fatherly face again shines upon them. Article 6, God will not permit his elect to be lost, for God who is rich in mercy, according to the unchangeable purpose of his election, does not completely withdraw his Holy Spirit from his own, even in their deplorable fall. Neither does he permit them to sink so deep that they fall away from the grace of adoption and the state of justification, or commit the sin unto death or the sin against the Holy Spirit. 
and totally deserted by him, plunge themselves into eternal ruin. Well, of the congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, several weeks ago, Pastor Bradenoff began to preach on the fifth and the last head of doctrine in the canons of Dort. It's that head which is called the perseverance of the saints, or if you will, God's preserving of the saints. Now, it has to be admitted that this is not a very popular or well-known teaching today. If you were to examine the doctrinal statements of any number of churches, you would often find that it is missing. Nothing is said or confessed about perseverance. It cannot be detected on the theological or doctrinal radar screen. But there is more to it, for if it were to be detected, it would probably be shot down in a hurry. All manner of theological guns would come out blazing and take aim at it. For you see, the prevailing sentiment is that it is possible for Christians to be saved and then still to be lost in the end. In other words, there is really nothing certain about your salvation or my salvation. It's here today, but it very well may be gone tomorrow. But beloved, when we hear that, we also need to ask ourselves, is that really true? Is that actually biblical? And indeed, does it not run counter to the very words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself, when he says in John 10, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, I think that's rather clear and simple language. Jesus explicitly promises that his sheep will never perish. Is he wrong? Was he going out on a limb and going too far? Was he exaggerating? What shall we believe? And what about the Apostle Paul? He writes to the Romans that believers are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who has loved them, conquerors even over death and Satan and hell. He says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is he right? Or is he tooting his own theological horn? Shall we scratch that most beautiful chapter of Romans 8 out of... Bible, it's just so much wishful thinking. Now, beloved, I could go on and on in that vein. However, I think that you know exactly what I am getting at, and it is this, the teaching of the perseverance of the saints is a biblical teaching. You can find it everywhere in Scripture. Go home after this service, read your Bible, and it'll pop up if you're looking for it everywhere. The joyous news rings out that the saints of God 
will prevail. Or in the words of John Newton's famous song, Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. But then, beloved, if the saints will prevail or be brought home, it also has to be said that this prevailing or this bringing home is not always an easy or automatic process or business. Newton talked about many dangers, foils or toils and snares. And well, he might. But that's also the subject of these next three articles in the fifth head of doctrine, or the fifth chapter of the Canons of Dort. Let's turn to that now. I preached to you on the theme, God preserves his own, and yet, true saints can fall. Real saints do offend. Elect saints will be rescued. Well, beloved, you will know that Article 4 of the, the Canons here opens once again, And it's busy speaking about the supremacy, or you can say the triumph of God's grace. It says, although the power of God whereby he confirms and preserves true believers in grace is so great that it cannot be conquered by the flesh. And you know, the basis for that particular statement or assertion comes from Ephesians 1 verse 19, where Paul speaks about God's incomparable power for us, who believe. And then he goes on to say that this is exactly the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead and that God used to make him sit at the heavenly places far above all power and authority. And Paul says this is now the power that sustains the children of God in this life. And that's something to rejoice in. That's something to rave about. There is no power like the awesome preserving power of the Lord our God. And yet, the presence of this great power in our lives does not mean that bad things will never happen to us. For Article 4 continues, yet the converted are not always so led and moved by God that they cannot in certain particular actions turn aside through their own fault from the guidance of grace and be seduced by and yield to the lusts of the flesh. Notice the possibility here. It's the possibility that God's children turn aside through their own fault from the guidance of grace. Sometimes God's people do not want to be guided by grace. Sometimes they want to go their own way. Sometimes they even decide to go their own sinful, conceited way. And now, when does this happen? Well, again, the canons are helpful when they repeat a certain biblical phrase in Article 4, and it's the phrase, watch and pray. When God's children do not watch and pray, bad things happen. 
And it is then that the train of the Christian life often goes off the tracks. Now maybe you know something about that. After all, there are times in all of our lives when we, when we let our guard down as believers, when we are not, so to speak, on our toes, when we perhaps suspend our critical faculties, and we kind of just go with the flow. And then invariably, what happens? Well, we usually end up saying things and doing things that are silly, dumb, sinful, or even stupid. For example, you're with a group of friends, and the alcohol starts to flow, and the one beer leads to the second beer, and the second beer leads to the third beer, and the third beer leads to the fourth, and so on. And suddenly you wake up and you realize you have become the jerk of the party. You're the person who's out of control. You see, there's this price that you pay for not watching. The same thing goes for not praying. Stop praying and you lose touch with God. Your faith life begins to slide. Your focus shifts. Your your conscience takes a hit. Is it any wonder that those who do not pray do not practice their faith either, much less worship the God of heaven and earth? And then they wake up puzzled to find that their spiritual life has become so limp and that God's blessings are so far and few and in between. You see, beloved, not praying is like boycotting God. So it is any wonder that these kind of things happen to us. But there's more. For those who do not watch and pray are also guilty of underestimating and misconstruing the very nature of this life. For what is this life? Is this life, as some young people seem to think, one big, long, non-stop party? Or is it one huge, perpetual picnic? Or is it, as some people tend to think these days, an ongoing holiday? No, beloved, this life And the scripture reminds us of it over and over again. This life is a life of intense conflict and of numerous enemies. It's filled with temptations. And it's filled with that unholy troika of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Just... Who do you think is responsible for the mess that you read about in your newspapers last week? And that you see on CBC, CTV, CNN every evening? Last week a man by the name of Peter Whitmore was in the news for kidnapping and assaulting young boys. What's his problem? At bottom, it's the flesh. He cannot control his lust for young boys. And neither can that priest in Chatham, Ontario, control his lust for young girls. Last week, five Canadian soldiers were killed in Afghanistan. And why? Well, you can say because of the world. 
In this world, there are all kinds of false ideologies and religions that enslave and capture the hearts of weak people. Throw in your lot with Allah and the Taliban, and your life will be so much better. And many believe it. Along with dying and going to heaven and being surrounded by all those virgins. And last week as well, there and there is still today, conflict in the Middle East between Israel and the Hezbollah in Lebanon. And why? Because of the devil. Beloved, you know, when you read the New Testament, you cannot get away from the fact that the one thing the devil loves in our lives is misery. He loves to make and to see people suffer. Think of all of those demon-possessed people that you meet in the Gospels. Are any of them happy? Are any of them smiling? No, they're all in torment. And what the devil does in the lives of people, he does in the lives of nations as well. He drives them apart. He pits them against each other. He causes them to hate and to bomb and to murder one another. And you know, so often when catastrophe strikes in this world and people, they shake their fists at heaven and they blame God. But when was the last time that you heard that they take it out on the real culprits of evil, pain, suffering, and death? When did you hear anyone putting the blame where the blame really belongs, namely at the feet of the flesh, the world, and the devil? Truly beloved, that's where the pain in this life comes from. And that's where the pain in the church comes from too. Article 4 names some names. The no names are David and Peter. The unknown names are lumped together under the heading Other Saints. What accounted for Peter or David's lamentable fall? Well, didn't it have everything to do with the flesh? His eyes lay hold of Bathsheba and he just had to have her. Lust consumed him. Lust made him do terrible things. Lust almost cost him his kingdom. And what accounted for the lamentable fall of Peter? Didn't it have everything to do with the devil? The devil who desired to have him, the devil who wanted to sift him, the devil who wanted to win him over just as he had won Judas over? And what about all those other saints? No names are mentioned, we said, but we can fill in the blanks with the names of believers like Lot, Jacob, Moses, Solomon, Samson, so many others. Oh, and before we get too high and mighty, maybe we should add our own names to Article 4. Are we always so pure and holy in all of our words, deeds, and thoughts? Are we the poster boys and the poster girls of God's perfection scrapbook? Have we never slipped, stumbled, or fallen when it comes to the things of God? 
Beloved, saints can fall. And saints do fall. Saints fall because they fail to watch and pray. Saints fall because they underestimate the power of the flesh and the world and the devil. Yes, and saints fall for one other reason as well, and that's called with the righteous permission of God. In other words, sometimes God lets us fall on our noses. Now, so the reason why he does so well, any number of things can be cited. Perhaps he he thinks that we need to experience the consequences of our wrong attitudes. Maybe we need some disciplining or punishment. Maybe we need some humbling. Maybe we need some trying and some testing. Maybe we need to develop more moral backbone and character. Who knows? I don't know. God only knows. And God always knows best. In any case, beloved, sometimes saints can and do fall. And so sometimes, sorry to go on for a minute yet, but they do fall very deep. Article 5 describes that sorry development. And you'll notice Article 5 does so in considerable detail. And as a matter of fact, Article 5 lists six effects of serious sin. It says, by such gross sins, however, they greatly offend God. That's number one. Sometimes when we think of the damage that sin causes in our lives and in the lives of others, we we put this at the bottom of the list. But I think the canons are right when they say this should be first. Because sin is always first and foremost a violation of God, of His person, of His will, of His love, of His salvation. If we thought more and more of God and higher of God, we would be more sensitive to the fact that sin really does hurt God. Notice as well it says they incur the guilt of death. Another thing that we so often forget is that there is a very close connection between sin and death. And that still today, sin often does bring death. Third thing is they grieve the Holy Spirit. Here's another person that we often forget about when it comes to the damage of sin in our lives. We're quick to think about our spouses and our children and our parents and our friends and everybody else. What about the Holy Spirit? What about that other counselor that the Lord Jesus specifically sends to us? What about the spirit of holiness? What about the one who turns our bodies into temples? Do we think about him? The fourth effect that's mentioned is they suspend the exercise of faith. When we're living a life of sin, we're usually not living a life of worship and praise. And if we are, then it's very much 
a life of hypocrisy. The reality is, however, that when we live in sin, faith is usually pushed far, far into the background. Why, just the other day I heard of a man who left his wife and children and went off with another woman. Not an unusual event, unfortunately, these days. Thankfully, however, he came back. But it was after many, many years that he came back. And when he came back, he recounted his story and his journey, and he described in graphic terms how he had tried and tried to push faith away. He wanted to kill it. But thankfully, God only allowed him to suspend it. Fifthly, the canons talk about they severely wound the consciences. There you have another sad result of a life in sin. Now, thankfully, there is forgiveness for all kinds of sins, even the most sordid and disgusting of sins. But sins do leave scars. They leave scars on your conscience. Sometimes sin leaves scars on your conscience that never go away in this life. You simply have to carry them and you have to ask God to help you to carry them. One last thing, they result in a loss of a sense of God's favor. That's the last thing. This losing of this this sense. And, you know, for a lot of people, this may be the most dreaded thing of all. To live in this life with a sense that God has abandoned you or that God has written you off eternally. Isn't that awful? And yet sin can do that too. Well, beloved, we could go on. But nevertheless, I think that together the scriptures and the canons, we've said enough. We've dissected enough of sin's dreaded effects. In short, we've had enough of bad news. Yes, and it is with that in mind that we should not overlook Article 6 for what do we have there We have in Article 6, and you notice it almost right away, we have one of those, although you may not see it very clearly, but I'll show it to you in a moment. We have one of those glorious buts of the gospel. In that particular Article 6, the canons quote from Ephesians 2, verse 4, and in the original Greek, that verse reads, But God, who is rich in mercy, through the great love with which he has loved us, And in that article as well, the canons bring together Ephesians 1 and the teachings of Ephesians 2, and they say, For God, who is so rich in mercy, according to the unchangeable purpose of his election, does not completely withdraw his Holy Spirit from his own, even in their deplorable fall. And indeed, the article goes on to state that God does not permit the elect, number one, to sink so deep 
that they fall away from the grace of adoption and the state of justification. And number two, he does not allow them to commit the sin unto death or the sin against the Holy Spirit. And number three, he doesn't permit them to plunge themselves into eternal ruin. And it should be noted here that the Arminians said all of this could happen. It's possible, they said, for a child of God to fall from adoption and from justification. It's possible to commit the sin against the Holy Spirit. They could experience eternal ruin. In other words, nothing is certain and nothing is sure. The Calvinists said not so. And why? Because God's eternal election in Christ cannot be undone. Because the grace of God will try us. And that's another way of saying that we are back to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of our sermon. He says about his sheep, about those who have been given him by the Father, that they shall never, never perish. Human sin is bad, despicable, and disgusting as it may get. Cannot annul or nullify God's election in Christ. And is that, beloved, not a great comfort for all of us? To know that even as believers who so often stumble and fumble and our way through this life, you know, it's frequently a case of two steps forward, one step back when it comes to sanctification. And at times it's even a case of falling on our proud faces in rather humiliating fashion. And yet God, God does not wash His hands of us. All who are truly in Christ through faith can say together with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Our God will not allow his elect children to be lost. Grace will lead us home. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.